You are listening to the sermon podcast of Redemption Chapel in Stowe, Ohio. For more resources and information, go to redemptionchapel.com. So our family, we love making memories. Memories are awesome. Uh, So one memory that is dear to us as a family, uh, when Madison was born, she's always been just a really cute little girl. And I'm looking at her her as a wee thing thinking, one day this girl's going to want to date. And that's not going to be good, right? Like, I'm not going to like that. And so what I did when she was just a little girl, I tricked her into memorizing a rule. Now, back at that time, we had a digital camera to take stills, but it had the ability to capture video. And so I'm like, okay, I got I to gotta memorialize this. This is really important. So we did. Here you go. Man, speak real loud and clear and tell me what's the new rule. Good girl. No dating until I'm 25. Amen. Record that. Uh, if you're, if you got a young daughter and you're thinking about it, I just got to warn you, it doesn't work. Didn't work. So she's 22 and, uh, oh, I went backwards. No, where'd it go? There we go. There she is. So yeah, she's 22. It didn't work. There she is. Um, she'll be married this summer. So, uh, but I'll tell you what, these are great memories. Like both that video and this shot right there, getting engaged, great memories. One of my fears for today's day and age is that we take too many pictures, right? Like, y'all take pictures of your food. Like, hey, here's my plate of food. Okay, here's my fear. When everything's a memory, nothing's a memory. And so moments like that get lost in a feed with plates of food. You see that? When everything's a memory, nothing's a memory. And I mention that because here we are in Stacking Stones. So we're in Joshua, and that's when they're going in and conquering the promised land. And along the way, there are these points where God said, hey, that was really important. Remember that. So take a snapshot or post it on instant. No, stack some stones. Stack some stones, and we're going to need to remember that moment. Because when everything's a memory, nothing's a memory. That's one you got to remember, people. And so stacking stones. Now we come to chapter 9. We got some really cool story to get into today. What happens in chapter 9 is, remember, Israel has already wiped out Jericho. Then, just last week, Pastor Sean took us through, they wiped out Ai. Now, some of the Canaanite kings in that land, they're getting nervous. They're getting mad. And so they band together and say, hey, let's, let's group up and let's oppose Israel. Before some of that fighting starts, though, what happens is one of the cities decides to take a unique approach and to solve the problem by trickery. So watch this. Here we are in Joshua 9, starting at verse 3. It says, But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet, and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, 
and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Now, brief aside, that was a lot of text. Get used to that. I'm going for a PR today in the amount of text I throw at you. Okay. It won't be my most slides, but it'll be the most text, I think. So a lot, but it's really cool stuff. So what's going on here? Well, remember, God told them that when you conquer the promised land, do not make any covenants with any of the people in Canaan. Don't do it. Wipe them out. But for Joshua's sake, I mean, these people came to them. They are seemingly from a distant country, right? And so granted, we got to fight everybody in the promised land, but wouldn't it be really cool to have like allies on our borders so we don't have to fight everyone? Right? So, of course, he goes, oh, this is really good. But the big problem is they did not, they did not seek counsel from God. If you watch over and over throughout the book, should we do this? Should we do that? They go to God and God leads them very clearly and directly, tells them what to do. In this case, they don't do it. They take matters into their own hands. And therefore, Gibeon is able to trick them into a covenant of peace. And here's why that's a problem. Where's Gibeon? See the red dot? Let me be more specific. The red dot right smack dab in the middle of Canaan? Like, you done messed up, Joshua. Like, you done messed up. Like, oops, but no good. No bueno right there. So Israel, eventually, they figure it out. <laughs> it didn't take them long to figure it out. And they decide to honor the covenant because they swore it. They honor the covenant. Now, that means they messed up with God then. Right? And that's what happens when you don't seek his face. So now they're in this, this covenant. Okay, that's chapter 9. It's important background data. We're really working towards chapter 10, okay? Because you notice so far there was no stacking stones. Okay, so let's chapter 10. Chapter 10 begins with five Amorite kings banding together. Now, let me hit pause there. Amorite The Amorites were a subset of the Canaanites. So when you hear Amorite, think Canaanite. In fact, there are times in the Bible where the Bible use Amorites as a subset to refer to the whole of Canaan. Okay, so that means Canaanites. All right, anyway. So there's these five Amorite kings, and they are ticked at the city of Gibeon. And the reason why is, hey, I thought we were all going to band together and wipe them out. Now we got one of our cities, a big, important city, that just made a covenant of peace with Israel. What if everybody starts doing this? So they decide to march on the city of Gibeon and wipe them out to make an example out of them to really dissuade anyone else from defecting and making peace with Israel. So here they're on the march. Now what will Joshua do? He actually decides to defend them which to me is wild. Like if I were Joshua, that's not how it would have gone down. Like I'm a, first of all, these people lied to me. Okay, they're tricksters, they're deceivers. I thought I was making a covenant with some distant country, not a city right in the middle of where I'm not supposed to make covenants. So I'm, not, I'm not saving your butt. Oh, and then secondly, I made a covenant of peace with you. That means I won't destroy it. Doesn't mean I'm gonna save you from other people. And then third, Joshua has a problem. 
He wasn't supposed to make a covenant. He's supposed to wipe them out, but he promised he wouldn't wipe them out. But if five other kings wipe them out, that solves my problem, right? Like, awesome. But that's not the route he goes. Joshua decides to defend them. And what it is, is this. Grace on display. See, already we've encountered the idea that the Gibeonites are not worthy. They're deceiving tricksters. But the Israelites are not worthy. They they don't consult God. They mess up. They make big mistakes. We've encountered Rahab, the prostitute, who's not worthy. But it seems like the unworthy are the ones that God claims. And he pours his grace in there. He pours his love in there. And he makes them worthy based on who God is, not based on who they are. Unworthy is what God does. And so Joshua carries out that theme and says, okay, we will defend them. So there's going to be a wild battle in chapter 10. It starts out this way, though. Israel is over in Gilgal. You'll see it to the right there over the Dead Sea with a question mark. So they have a 25-mile march. It's uphill, like no joke, like seriously, incline in elevation the whole way. 25 miles uphill. They have to do it quickly to get there, which means they march through the night. So they do it in its difficult terrain. 25 miles uphill in darkness over difficult terrain. There's no flashlights back then, right? So this is really, really hard. By the time they get to Gibeon, they're exhausted. And they have to fight five armies. If God doesn't show up, they're dead. They're just dead. So God does show up. God decides to stack some stones of his own. Okay, so what I mean by that is he, it says he rains stones from heaven down on the Amorite armies. Later on, it'll call them hailstones. Often in the Bible, it calls them hailstones. But these aren't like, like golf ball and grapefruit. This is like big old hailstones, right? And so it just calls them stones, which is kind of cool because it keeps the theme of Joshua. God is stacking stones on top of the Amorites. And it says that more Amorites died by the stones than by the sword. God's fighting this battle. Now, Israel has the advantage and has them on their heels. So they got to wipe them out now. This is their chance to strike while the iron's hot. But the day is starting to wane. And so God does something else miraculous. He has the sun and the moon stand still. Of course, we know the earth rotates and all that stuff, but meteorologists still say the sun rises and sets, and they know it, right? So it's a phenomenological thing. Anyway, scholars debate, like, what happened, how it happened. We don't know. What we do know is that it happened. And that God, again, miraculously stepped in to fight the battle. So that's what happened. As a result, then, these five kings, they're on the run. And they're going to try to protect themselves. So they get to this place called Makeda and they hide in a cave. And we pick up the story in Joshua chapter 10, verse 16. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. 
Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. He's a good military commander. He's saying, hey, listen, don't get distracted. Do not get off point. We are not here to just kill five kings. We're here to wipe out five armies in the process of conquering the promised land given to us by God. And so the goal isn't the kings, the goal is the armies. And they're on the run, so attack their rear guard and get them before they get back to their fortified cities. We'll deal with the kings later. And indeed, that is exactly what happens. Israel spanks the Amorite armies, just decimates them. And then they return to this cave at Makeda. And everything I've said so far is just my introduction. It's going to be a long sermon. No, that's not true. But but this is all set up to get to this passage right here. Joshua chapter 10, verse 22, says this. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, Put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and they put their feet on the, on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. And there you are. There's some stacked stones. There's the memorial. So whenever there's some stacked stones, we want to go, what's that? What's that mean? What are we supposed to remember? Well, I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about what it meant to Israel and then what it means to us today. Let's start with Israel. So Joshua says, hey, bring the kings out. They bring them out. And then he has the, they're very much alive. They have the kings lie down on the ground and he brings the chiefs of his armies and he says, put your feet on their necks. Now to us, that, that seems icky. As modern Americans, most of us are not very used to war. Uh, and, and so we don't like that imagery at all. But you need to understand, in the ancient Near East, that was a very common practice. Once you had conquered an enemy, it, would, it was symbolic. It would symbolize my victory, his defeat. And actually, it is something that you might have been familiar with from the scriptures and not even realized it. Some of you might be familiar with this verse out of Psalm 110. Verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I've heard that many times. And and it didn't click until I started studying this passage. That's what that is. This is putting your your foot on their neck to say, I am the victor. Okay, so, so maybe you've heard that before. Now, when they did that to these five kings, remember what Joshua said. 
Then they came near and put their feet on the neck, on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Be strong and courageous. You see, I underline it. It's a very significant phrase. See, what happened is this. At the very beginning of the book of Joshua, this is before Joshua even entered the land, before they did any battles in there. And Moses was really the leader. He was the guy. Everybody knew Moses. Follow Moses. Moses is dead. Joshua, you got to lead. And Joshua's like, man, I, I don't know. Are they going to listen to me? Is this going to go okay? So in Joshua chapter 1, God has a pep talk with Joshua. In verse, starting in verse 6 of chapter 1, here's what's said. God says this, be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And that's a promise. God is with you, Joshua. And if you listen to him, if you follow him, listen, he will fight your battles. It's going to be okay. You can be strong and courageous. It's a very significant phrase, uh, To Joshua, he preaches it to the people of Israel. Today I'm preaching it to you. I preach it to my son. And my son's name is Caleb. His middle name is Joshua. He's named after two great warriors in the Bible who were actually contemporaries. They were buddies. That's this Joshua. And so this phrase out of Joshua 1 has become so significant to my son, he inked it. So that's a a tat done by an artist who of the sword that I gave to Caleb when he turned 18. But he recently had those Hebrew letters put beneath it by his wife, who's now a tattoo artist herself. And that says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. We got to ink that on our minds. We'll come back to that. But then what happened is, so Joshua then kills these guys and he has them hanged on a tree. Now ask yourself this. Why did he hang them on a tree? Was it to display their dead bodies to make them? Well, listen, if it's to display, you display them for days, weeks, months. They're only up there for hours and he brings them down by sundown and puts them in the cave. What's going on there? It's again symbolic. It is to say these guys are cursed. Look, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So it's a curse. It's to say these guys are cursed, but notice they're not supposed to hang there all night. So they bring them down from the tree. They throw their dead bodies back into the cave, which now becomes their tomb, right? 
And then they seal it up by stacking stones across the entrance. And it says, which remain there to this very day. Obviously that day was that the, the day when the book of Joshua was being written, not today, but anyway. So there it is. There's the memorial. Now the question is, when the children of Israel went throughout the land, if they went through Makeda and they saw this cave with these stones stacked against it, what would they be remembering? It's a memorial. It's a memory. What are they remembering? A couple things. God is with us. I mean, you guys remember that, that battle? We would have been wiped out. But God is with us. So also, God will fight our battles. He will rain down stones. He'll stop the sun. He'll do whatever he needs. God will fight our battles. And in the process, God will conquer our enemies. He will take our enemies and he will put his foot on their necks. Make them a footstool. God will conquer our enemies. Oh, and don't forget this. When they see those stones, they're going to remember God is gracious to us. This entire story happened because Joshua screwed up. That's why this happened. He made a covenant without consulting God. And so when they see those stones, they're going to remember God is with us. God will fight our battles. God will conquer our enemies. And even when we don't deserve it, because we're not worthy, God is. It's not about who we are. It's about who God is. And oh, by the way, one other bullet. If all those things are true, therefore, we can be strong and courageous. Because as as Israel's going, listen, there were more battles. There's going to be another battle and another battle and another battle. And so they're going to look at these stones against the mouth of that cave and they're going to remember God is with us. God will fight our battles. God will conquer our enemies. God is gracious to us. What are we to fear? Let's go do this thing. We can be strong and courageous. They'll remember. In fact, on Jonathan, Joshua chapter 10, a guy named Joshua, I cannot get these two guys straight. So Joshua 10, a guy named Jonathan Parnell said this. If the next Bible-inspired movie was about Joshua taking the promised land, it might be even one that many adults choose to miss, especially if it stays true to the biblical account. It would likely have more violence than the roughest action film to date. Though, at the same time, and to much surprise, offer more hope than the best feel-good movie ever could. They would look at that, that cave with those stones, they would have hope. We can be strong and courageous. That's what it would mean to Israel. I'm even more excited to talk about what it means to us. I don't know if you caught it. This story is shot through with allusions to Jesus Christ. It is riddled with foreshadowing to our Lord Jesus. Remember Psalm 110? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If that sounds familiar to you, it's probably not because it's in Psalm 110. It's been quoted in the New Testament three times. Luke chapter 20, Acts chapter 2, and Hebrews chapter 1. And each of those times, it's applied to Jesus. This is about Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
And how did Jesus conquer? <laughs> okay, remember, there were five kings. Actually, there's six kings in the story you're about to see. But there were five kings back then. And, and when Jesus, remember Jesus was hung on a cross. When he was hung on the cross, there was a sign over his head. Do you know what it said? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. There's the sixth king in the story right there. Jesus is the king, okay? And after those five kings back in the day were killed, remember what Joshua did with them? He hung them, had them hanged on a tree, right? Okay, here's something interesting. The Hebrew word for tree has a broader range than our English word for tree. The Hebrew word for tree also means wood, stick, or pole. Yeah, they could have been hung on a pole like a cross. It's in the semantic range. And and you'll even see that in passages in the New Testament, like Acts chapter 13. This is about Jesus. It says, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Remember, Jesus' body wasn't on the cross overnight either. They took it down before sundown, just like in Joshua chapter 10. And then Jesus hung on a cross. Now listen, what that means is Jesus became cursed for us. And we read about that in Galatians 3. Look at this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We did it. It's our curse. He took it. Why? Because he hung on a tree. And all of its grace, just like Israel didn't deserve it, we don't deserve it, we didn't earn it, he did it for us. And after he did that for us, they took his body down from that tree And where'd they put Jesus? In a tomb. Have you ever seen depictions? It looks a lot like a cave. They were carved out on the side of a mountain. And then once they put him in that tomb, what did they do to it? They rolled a stone against the entrance. Are you kidding me? This is so crazy cool. They rolled a stone across the entrance. There are so many similarities. But one, one very, very important difference. See, in Joshua chapter 10, it says those stones remain there till this day. But not with Jesus. No. That stone, not against that cave. Not against that tomb. Not to this day. Uh-uh. Jesus became a curse for us, yes. But then he rose victoriously as the resurrected king. And so there was a bloody cross, but there's also an empty tomb and that stone is rolled away. And I'll tell you what, more than any other stone in Joshua, in the Old Testament, it doesn't matter. The most important stone memorial is found in the New Testament. It's the stone that's rolled away. It's very different. A lot of similarities, one big difference. And here's the thing. You are not ancient Israelites conquering the promised land. You're not. I hope you're a Christian. That means you're a Christian in 2024, but you are in a battle. Life's a battle. It's a spiritual battle going on all around us. And here's the good news. The king has been killed, but he rose in victory. The tree is bloody, but the tomb is empty. The stone is rolled away. Christ is the victor. 
And the stone is rolled away to this day. And that's our memorial. That's what we need to remember. When he did that, by the way, Jesus conquered your enemy. He has your enemy under his foot right now. And I don't mean like, well, yeah, health and financial woes. Don't care right now. Don't mean to be harsh. But that, I'm talking about bigger fish right now. I'm talking about sin and death and guilt and shame and disgrace and humiliation and hiding. These are your enemies. And Jesus puts them under his feet as the conqueror. And why did he do it? He did it to fulfill the promise given to Joshua in chapter 1 that God would be with you wherever you go. He did that because God wants to be with you and he wants you to be with him. He wants to have a relationship with you. That's why he did this. And then he wants us to remember that, yeah, listen, life's still going to hurt. There's more battles around the corner. In this fallen, broken world, until our victorious king comes back or till we go home, life will have battles. It will hurt. And yet, we need to look, figuratively speaking, look at that rolled away stone and remember. It's as if God is saying, listen, I did that for you. I defeated your enemies. The cross is bloody. The tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled away. And if all that is true, then listen, maybe, just maybe, just maybe, you can be strong and courageous. You can be strong and courageous. Listen, strong and courageous, those are fighting words. Those are war words. Those are battle words. And I said earlier, I'll say it again. Most of us modern Americans are not very familiar with war and battle. It's a horrible thing. But most human history around the globe is very familiar with it in a way we are not. But life is war. There is a spiritual battle going on all around you right now. And you know what we need? We need a conquering hero God. We need a warrior God. We need a victorious God. There's a guy named Dale Ralph Davis who, writing on Joshua, captured this very, very well. Here's what he said. This does not fit our sentimental 20th century graven images of what God ought to be like. The imagery seems too violent. And we do the same for the Lord Jesus, with perhaps not a little help from church school materials. The popular image of Jesus is that he is not only kind and tender, but also soft and prissy as though Jesus comes to us reeking of hand cream. Such a Jesus can hardly steal the soul that is daily assaulted by the enemy. We need to learn the catechism of Psalm 24. Question, who is the king of glory? Answer, Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. We must catch the vision of the faithful and true sitting on the white horse, the one who judges and makes war in righteousness. No mild God or soft Jesus can give his people hope. It is only as we know the warrior of Israel who fights for us and sometimes without us that we have hope of triumphing in the muck of life. And here's what I want you to know. You have battles. You have stuff that's kicking your butt. You have stuff that is holding you down, 
holding you back. Again, health and wealth is not my interest. I'm talking about bigger fish right now. I'm talking about sin. You've got habitual sin in your life. Addictive sin. Some of you are addicted to substances. Some of it isn't like big sin, but it's just like this constant pattern of sin in your life. You got an enemy called shame. You got shame over stuff you've done. You've got shame over stuff that's been done to you. You got worldliness. Worldliness is where I seek my identity and my fulfillment in the world instead of the face of God. You got worldliness. You got an enemy of lies that you believe. Lies that are banging around in your head of perfectionism and performance and people pleasing. And you just hear this voice all the time saying, run, run, hide. You better hide because if people really knew the real you, nobody would love you. Nobody. Run. Hide. Those are enemies. They're in your head. What you need is a conquering hero. You need a victorious warrior God to step on the necks of your enemies to free you. To let you know that yes, there will be hard battles ahead, but he is with you, he loves you, he's gracious to you, there's a bloody cross, there's an empty tomb, there's a stone rolled away, he's got you. And if that be true, then you can be strong and courageous. You can fight those battles. So here's how I want us to respond. I'm going to do something just a little bit different this morning. In a moment, I'm going to read Romans chapter 8. And it's going to be a long passage. I've warned you people. I'm going to stick with the theme. It's going to be a lot. uh, But here's the thing. What I'm going to do is I read this passage. I am hoping that during that time, the Holy Spirit triggers you at some point. When it is, is up to you. But at some point while I'm reading that, you stand right where you are. Let me tell you why you'd stand. If you want to be a woman or a man of strength and courage. You stand. If you want Jesus to be your conquering hero, if you want him to step on the necks of your enemy, if you want to rest secure in his love and his grace to you, if you want to declare, I know he will fight my battles. I don't know if it's going to be in this world or when I go home to him, but I know he will conquer. Anytime while I'm reading from Romans 8, you feel led, you go ahead and stand where you are. And here it is. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Amen. Go ahead and bow your heads with me, if you will. If you're not yet standing, join us in standing, if you will, please. And Let me pray. Father, we come to you because we have screwed up way worse than just failing to consult you on a covenant. We have screwed up so much. We've caused a mess. And we need, we desperately need a victorious, conquering, risen king. A warrior God in Jesus. We have enemies. We have things that plague us. Lord God, crush our enemies, please. I don't mean people. I don't mean Paul. I mean stuff going on in our life. Crush those things. I don't know if you'll do it now or when you take us home, but Father God, crush those things. Free these people. Free me, please. Be our victorious God and right now receive our worship to our resurrected King. And I pray for that in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Redemption Chapel. Go to redemptionchapel.com for more resources and information.